As you're seated, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to 1 Peter 2. As you know, we've been in a series in 1 Peter on Sunday mornings, and so I'd like to pick up a little bit where we left off and overlap a bit to look at the end of 1 Peter 2. Now, on Sunday, we looked at the last handful of verses in 1 Peter 2, verses 18 to 25, eight verses there. The first half of that passage was about how we Christians should view those in human institutions who are over us. So in jobs, that's bosses, and kids in the home, that's parents, or, or at school, it's teachers. And First Peter told us, chapter 2, that we should submit in honor to those who are over us in human institutions, even if there is injustice and harshness and their suffering, we should endure suffering. That was the first half of our passage on Sunday. The second half of our passage on Sunday was how Christ is the supreme example of this. How he endured hardship unjustly. And of course, Peter takes us to the cross as the obvious example, as the supreme example in history and in the Bible of suffering injustice to the glory of God. But as Peter unpacks Christ's example for us of enduring unjust hardship, he's simultaneously reminding us that Jesus isn't just our example. Now, don't misunderstand. He does say that Jesus is our example. So, verse 21, For to this, this suffering, this enduring injustice, for to this you've been called, because Christ all suffered for you, leaving you an example, see? So that you might follow in his steps. Clearly, Peter's saying Jesus is our example here. But, but, but again, he, he's telling us this as he's already established some things in this letter about Jesus' death and what it means for us. And hence, I think he's now assuming what he's already said. And hence, he's implying here that Jesus is not just our example. Hence, he'll go on later in these verses that we'll look at tonight to show us some results of Jesus' death that are not just exemplary. You see, if Jesus is just our example, like liberal theology says, those who don't believe in Jesus' deity, they don't believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ, if Jesus is just our example, then we're still in our sins, and we're not very good followers, and we don't have much hope, and we have to redefine Jesus. He's not a savior, but he's a teacher. Jesus isn't just our example. Peter doesn't want us to read these verses in isolation and only think of Jesus as our example. It wasn't wrong on Sunday morning to more focus on how Jesus is our example as we looked at these verses. We did that. Peter tells us to. But we shouldn't just look at these verses and see Jesus as our example. We should see that Jesus' suffering is not just a pattern to follow, but it's also a, a payment that's offered. It's forgiveness and it's, it's freedom. Really, we could think of Jesus' suffering upon the cross on three levels. One, it's salvation by his suffering. Two, it's a model of suffering. 
And three, it's a comfort for us in the midst of our suffering. The Bible speaks of the cross and Jesus' death, his suffering in all three of these ways. And that way then it also teaches us to look to him, not just as our example, but to look to him and to be fed by him. To look to him and, and, and think a certain way and feel a certain way and to be buoyed up in the midst of our trials. So there's a lot to cover tonight. Notice that phrase in verse 21, Christ also suffered for you. Those are loaded terms, aren't they? Christ suffered for you. And again, we know that for you is not just example. Peter will show us that. From this verse, verse 21, where he says, Christ also suffered from you. From there, every verse quotes from or alludes to Isaiah 53, that great chapter of the suffering servant written hundreds of years before Christ's birth and no doubt pointing to his death. I want to share with you five things about this passage of 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25. We won't read it all of them together at the same time, but as we work through this outline, we'll read each verse. The first is that he suffered righteously. When we hear Christ suffered for you, what should we think of? Well, Peter directs us. He suffered righteously. So verse 22 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And it's the second half of that verse that's a quote, a direct quote from Isaiah 53, verse 9. There was no deceit in his mouth. No lying. And that's just one part of many of his whole life. There's no sin. He wasn't just sinless, but he was righteous. So his sufferings upon the cross, you know, were not a result of his sin. It wasn't because he did bad and then was punished. Remember Peter talked about that earlier in this chapter? What credit is it if you get punished for doing bad? No, 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 that's what you get. Not Jesus. He's giving us a different example now. Not Jesus. In fact, in the case of Jesus, there has been no greater injustice ever. So Paul can exclaim in 1 Corinthians 2, You crucified the Lord of glory. The the irony of that juxtaposition. You crucified him. He's the Lord. The Lord of glory. He's the righteous one. If anyone ever had no reason to suffer, it was Jesus. There's a sense in which for us sinners... There's actually no such thing as unjust suffering. There is, in a sense, you have to think of it on two levels, like the story of Job. The, The story of Job begins with Job as a righteous man, right? The Bible commends him for his righteousness and his faithfulness, his godliness. In that sense, the suffering that comes in chapter 1 from the hands of Satan and human beings is unjust suffering. On the other hand, what is justice for sinners? It's God's wrath. It's not God's wrath eventually. It's God's wrath immediately. It's God's wrath yesterday. It's God's wrath already. 
In that sense, there's no such thing as unjust suffering. We're all under sin. We're all in this fallen and broken world. None of us get what we deserve. Jesus didn't get what he deserved either. But he suffered as a righteous one, and he suffered righteously. He suffered for us. His righteous suffering was for us. His suffering and his righteousness is our only hope. We don't have that kind of righteousness at all. When we're in trouble, unlike Jesus, we lie, don't we? Often we do. When we're even in the slightest bit of trouble, hey, can you help me out this Saturday? No, I got stuff. I can't. I got a thing. Got to wash my hair on Saturday. That was always the excuse of girls on the, on happy days, it seemed like. When I was a kid, I'd see that. We lie. There's deceit often found in our mouths. If we dared hear the number of lies that we've told in our lives, in our lives we'd shudder. In Psalm 24, there's the question, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Who gets to go into God's presence? In the presence of the Lord, that's where the fullness of joy is. We want to go into his presence, right? We want to ascend the hill of the Lord. Well, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. No deceit. That means not us. We cannot enter God's presence like that. And thankfully, the passage goes on to make clear who this is that can enter into God's holy place, who can ascend the hill of the Lord. Psalm 24 goes on to talk about the ones to come. Lift your head, you gates. Open up the doors. Get ready. He's coming. He's the Lord. He's the only one that can enter God's presence and make sacrifice for us because he's righteous. He suffered righteously. Secondly, we see in verse 23, he suffered patiently. It says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. Didn't revile, didn't threaten. In Isaiah 53 terms, the emphasis is put on the fact that he was silent. So it says in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Isaiah is just heaping up the descriptions of his rejection, his suffering, the injustice of his suffering. But then in verse 7, it says he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. No surprise then that the gospel accounts pick this up and they show Jesus silent. In Matthew 27, Pilate said to Jesus, don't you hear how many things they testify against you? This is now the trial. You can now take the stand. But Matthew tells us he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. Pilate was shocked by that. In Mark 15, the guards, 
They call the whole battalion, hundreds of soldiers over to join in mocking Jesus. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. They twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting it upon him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, then they stripped him of his purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. But Jesus said nothing. He did not revile in return. They were beating him with a reed. And he spoke the universe into existence. Are you getting that? He's the one who will return one day as though it's like a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth and he devours his enemies such that it's like he's covered in blood. Not his own blood, the blood of his enemies. And he doesn't really have a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. That's a way of describing how he just speaks their obliteration into being. That's the one they beat and spit upon. And he didn't revile in return. He didn't threaten. He's on the cross in Matthew 27. And there are these passerbyers. They deride him. They wag their heads and they say, if you're the son of God, then come down from the cross. He says nothing. Then the religious leaders join in. He saved others. He can't save himself. Oh, he's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if God loves him or desires him. He said, I'm the son of God. Even the robbers who were next to Jesus on either side, they were reviling him in the same way. But Jesus said nothing. He did not revile in return. He did not threaten. Jesus suffered patiently for us. Not briefly for us, but patiently for us. Oh, how quick we are to return evil for evil. Oh, how quick we are to put up the guard, put up the defense. How quick we are to want to play verbal or relational chess with someone who wants to play. How quick we are to revile behind someone's back. How quick we are to threaten in subtle ways. Not Jesus. He was patient in his suffering for us. Thirdly, he suffered confidently. Confidently, verse 23 at the end there, remember it said he didn't revile, he didn't threaten. Then it says, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see this in Jesus' prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane, don't you? In Matthew 26, it says he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he prayed the same prayer a total of three times. Not three quick prayers, but three prayer times. Sometimes, probably as much as an hour each time. He prayed. He pleaded with his father, but he trusted his father. If there be a possibility here, let this cup pass. But not as I will, but only as you will. But there was silence. Okay, let's roll. It's essentially what Jesus said. After he prayed the third time and there was no answer, he says, guys, it's time to get up. 
my accuser comes. Also from the cross, he trusted his father. In Luke 23, he called out with a loud voice and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. Three days later, he was vindicated in the resurrection, later in his exaltation, his ascension. Remember, the religious leaders mocked him. If he trusts in God, let God deliver him. Yeah, he did. God did deliver him. Not in the timing of the religious leaders' minds, but God did deliver him. There's so much in the New Testament about how the resurrection is vindication. It proves that what Jesus said is true. It proves that who he said he was, he is. It proves that what he said he was doing, he did. He suffered confidently. He trusted his father. He trusted the justice that awaited for those who crucified him, those who denied him, those who betrayed him, and also in the justice of the cross to save those who believe. Fourthly, though, this passage, 1 Peter 2, shows that Christ suffered selflessly. Verse 24, he suffered selflessly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. On the cross, on the tree, he was bearing sins. He was wearing sins. He was carrying them to the cross, is literally what it says here in 1 Peter 2. Not just that he was bearing the punishment of them on the cross, he carried them to the cross. Isaiah 53, again, is what's quoted by by Peter in 1 Peter 2. In Isaiah 53, verse 4, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verses 11 and 12 of Isaiah 53 say, He bore our sins. We know that verse well, that gospel nugget of 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that he who knew no sin, was made sin, was treated as sin, was bearing sin for us, that in him we might have the righteousness of God. He suffered selflessly. In verse 24, Peter says, by his wounds you've been healed. Notice that exchange there, that ironic exchange. Being healed by wounds, we deserve the wounds, he's all healing. And instead we get healing and he bears wounds. Just like Isaiah 53 said he would. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. He suffered selflessly for us. Romans 5 talks about how amazing this is. Paul says, scarcely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though I suppose it's possible. I suppose sometimes a good person would lay down his life for another good person and die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, he reconciled us to God through the death of his son. Christ suffered for us. What hope? What hope for for us? What hope for Peter? Don't forget who's writing this. Peter. Don't forget what he's writing about. Jesus being reviled. 
What was Peter doing in the gospel accounts when Jesus was being reviled? Oh, sure, he was at first naively brave when they came to arrest Jesus in the garden, so he pulled out a sword and he swung it at a soldier. But then after the arrest, he, with the other disciples, fled. And then they watched the rest of the events unfold, the trial, the beatings, the mockings, from a distance, it says. He watched from a distance. Until a little girl spots Peter and asks, wait a minute, weren't you with him? Weren't you one of his? Peter denies it. He not only denies being with Jesus, he says, I don't know the man. The man. To call him the man. I don't know the man. Of course, he'll do that a total of three times, each denial more vehement than the last one until the rooster crows the third time, just as Jesus told me would. You know how some events in your past are so monumentally bad or sad that even years later it takes a word or a phrase and then that whole scene, that whole experience comes rushing back to your mind. Don't you think that as Peter would have written phrases like this, he couldn't help but keep that experience of denying the Lord from his mind? When he writes of Jesus' wounds in verse 24, he, he saw the cross, right? It's not abstract. It's not, it's not a description that you've heard some preacher say or, or something you've read in a book or, or some painting you've seen that's pretty gruesome. He saw it live and in action. When he says in verse 23 that he suffered, or when he says that he was reviled, he saw that unfold. And then he says in verse 22, there was no deceit found in his mouth. Unlike Peter's, he deceitfully denied the Lord. Maybe as he writes this section of 1 Peter, it's irrepressible that he earlier said, not so, Lord, when Jesus talked about going to the cross multiple times. Not so, Lord, I will not have it. Such that Jesus had to rebuke him. Get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about. When Jesus goes to the cross, Peter begins to see what's happening that what Jesus promised was needed and true. At first, he didn't get why Jesus needed to die, and so now as he writes of Jesus' death, he probably can't help but remember those not-so-Lord kind of moments. But now he knows it. Now he gets it. He understands it all now. He's teaching us gospel truth in such succinct and poetic and theologically acute ways. He gets it all now. He's, he's an apostle. He's a, a church teacher. He not only remembers what he used to think and now knows what he now knows, but he also remembers how Jesus gave that sweet restoration at the end of John. Here you've got Peter the doubter, you could say. Not so, Lord. Then you've got Peter the denier. I don't know the man. 
And then you get to the end of John's gospel and there's this little sit down with Jesus and Peter. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? He says, I do. He said, okay, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I, I do, Lord. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. We, we kind of hear that feed my sheep like a, no, you don't. But some scholars interpret it, I think rightly so, as confirmation. Confirmation that Jesus and Peter are reconciled and Peter does love the Lord. He is restored such that he will be a feeder of the sheep. He'll be Jesus-like in his shepherding. So we've talked about how Jesus suffered righteously and patiently and confidently and selflessly, now successfully. Fifth, he suffered successfully. We've already seen that in verse 24. He bore our sins. Not he hoped to bear our sins or he kind of bore our sins. But he bore or took or absorbed our sins. And he did this so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And don't hear that might. Like he might, you might, you might die to sin. We'll see. But now it's more hopeful than that. Because it's by his wounds that we have been healed. You hear the success in the Savior's wounds here? The success of the Savior's healing? Now in verse 25, Peter says, You were straying like sheep, not anymore. Just like in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But now Peter's piggybacking on that and taking it for a turn. So he quotes from it and then says, but we have now returned to the shepherd. We were straying like sheep. We were wayward. We were away. We were distant. We were separate. We were broken in fellowship. And now we have been brought near. Jesus will bring his sheep in. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also. And they will be of one pen now return to the shepherd the shepherd and overseer of our souls so even in the midst of suffering we have comfort we're under the shepherd the shepherd not only provided salvation eternally he protects us daily he's near he cares so we should respond to this with great faith and confidence and joy and thanks and praise with a, a heart of freedom and a freedom that wants to, to bind it up under his lordship and obey him and do what he does and, and follow what he says. And all of that means that we can do what we talked about on Sunday. We can follow in his steps. In 1 Peter 4, Peter will go on to say, when a fiery trial comes upon you to test you, don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you, but instead rejoice. You're sharing in Christ's sufferings. Rejoice and be glad. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. 
because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So Jesus' suffering means, and our forgiveness in his suffering means we can now be buoyed up in our own suffering. And whatever they do to us now, whatever tomorrow brings, we know who holds the future. We know whom we have entrusted our souls to. We know who's the just judge. He's also our father. We know where our inheritance lies in heaven. It can't be taken away. So remember earlier on in chapter 1, Peter said, you don't yet see him, but you love him. You believe in him and you love him and you rejoice in him with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. And so we set our hope fully on the grace that's to be revealed with the coming of Jesus. Or in other words, here's how John Calvin put it almost 500 years ago. Listen to this. Without the gospel, everything is useless in vain. Without the gospel, we're not Christians. Without the gospel, all riches is poverty. All wisdom, folly before God. Strength is weakness. And all justice of man is under the condemnation of God. But by the knowledge of the gospel, we're made children of God, brothers of Jesus Christ, fellow townsmen with the saints, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, heirs of God with Jesus Christ, by whom the poor are made rich, the weak strong, the fools wise, the sinner justified, the desolate comforted, the doubting sure, the slaves free. It's the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. So it follows that every good thing we could think or desire is to be found in this same Jesus Christ alone. For he was sold to buy us back, captive to deliver us, condemned to absolve us. He was made a curse for our blessing, sin offering for our righteousness. He was marred that we might be made fair. He died for our life. So that by him, wrath would be appeased and darkness would turn into light. Fear would be reassured. Despisal, be despised. Debt, canceled. Labor, lightened. Sadness, made merry. Disorder, ordered. Division, unified. Rebellion, subjected. Intimidation, intimidated. Ambush, uncovered. Assaults, assailed. Force, forced back. War, warred against. Vengeance, avenged. Damnation, damned. Death, dead. Mortality, made immortal. And so we are comforted in tribulation. We're joyful in sorrow. We're glorying up under verbal abuse. We're abounding in poverty, warmed in our nakedness, patient amongst evils, living in death. This is what we should, in short, seek in the whole of Scripture to truly know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in him and are offered to us by him from God the Father.